Tonight I'd like to talk with you about a practice that goes along with loving-kindness, and that's called the uh, practice of dana. Dana is the Pali word, and again, Pali is the language used at the time of the Buddha. Dana gets translated as generosity or possibly caring actions. So as we have been cultivating loving-kindness and this loving awareness, and we see that it comes to visit us and then it gets obscured, and it comes to visit us again, it gets obscured. Through steady cultivation, our hearts do tend to uh, have this warmth, um, openness, and it's a little more reliable. It comes more often. And it comes more often to the point where it feels like it's a part of almost every moment, except for moments where um, you are particularly challenged. Um, but besides that, you can feel this benevolence, this kindness, becoming more and more a part of your open heart, your warm heart. And as your mind develops along with these teachings that the Buddha laid down, it's one of the things that you can track, you know, generally over the course of, uh, the course of this week. Um, but over the course of maybe a daily practice at home, done over many weeks or months or years, as the heart becomes less complicated, less caught up, uh, less pained and defended, as it opens up, this warmth becomes more ever-present. Um, so it's a beautiful part of our, of our practice of waking up, is not just the increase of clarity and seeing things more clearly, but there's this tone of kindness inside, which is a great relief. As our hearts open and then become more warm and we begin to interact with the world around us with this warm and open heart, we're touched by the world. And in that touching, often there is a response that comes. And the response can be just warmth and appreciation but it also might uh, engender some type of response, some type of um, generous response to whatever your heart is in contact with. That movement from going from appreciation towards a sharing, towards the heart's movement out of its caring, that movement we call dana, D-A-N-A. And it gets translated, um, again, the, the the most common translation is generosity. So a generosity of heart that comes when um, your heart is open and it's touched by the world and you feel some type of movement towards response. You could probably see it very easily wherever it's easy to practice loving kindness, wherever we have started to rekindle that fire if we've gotten distracted or we feel a little bit disconnected from our warm and open heart you can feel that this caring comes up and it can spill over into wanting to participate, wanting to um, help in any way. So rather than just wishing for somebody's safety, um, uh, that same place can grow a desire to participate in their safety, to participate in their protection if they needed it. Um, wishing somebody to be happy, appreciating if they are happy, and seeing if you can be a part of what cultivates their happiness, what cultivates their health, what cultivates their ease in the world. So metta by itself can just be um, a witnessing, a kind awareness that appreciates. But in that contact, it also can be an opening towards beautiful action, caring action. And that movement, again, is what we call dana or what I might uh, end up calling generosity, just to use the English and get us familiar with it. It's generosity, it's a caring action. This is what we call dana. Again, dana is that Pali word. It's spelled D-A-N-A. And so one of the habits of living in a community like this, when people start to practice dana and they feel dana, is they might um, want to share things and so, because we're not talking in silence, we might write D-A-N-A on something. And then you know, oh, it's for sharing, somebody is sharing. 
I might have more cookies than I want to eat, or I might have cookies that I want to eat, but I've decided to share them. So I might write D-A-N-A on them, and then people know, oh, somebody's sharing. <clears throat> it becomes difficult if your name is Dana, <laughs> and you're carefully trying to save you know, some little treat for yourself. <laughs> and you write Dana, and you see people joyfully, unabashedly, <laughs> devouring all the little things that you've put aside to caretake for yourself. And that's happened on some retreats. Those people named Dana are surprised at the boundary crossing they have to <laughs> experience. <laughs> but you'll see it around uh, this word, D-A-N-A, and it usually it does mean... Um, this is uh, a place of generosity, a place of sharing. As loving kindness grows, it tends to lose um, its specificity. So it tends to not be so much about, I feel loving kindness here, but not there. That's maybe where it starts, but as it grows, it tends to spread like water that's sort of coming up and at some point it comes over the container, it just tends to spread. It tends to spread out. You don't, you, we can welcome that and we can practice that. But if you practice loving kindness for yourself and it becomes pure, just in that purity of heart and you open your eyes, whatever that mind comes in contact with, it can't help but feel that kindness and appreciation. So the same way dana can be practiced, and it's a beautiful practice to kind of um, like with these practices, challenge yourself lightly to start where it's easy and then see where it's difficult and see if there's an interesting stretch, like stretching in yoga or ch- stretching in qigong, increasing motion, putting energy in motion to see what dana looks like when we put our heart in motion. One of the um, profound things that can happen on this path in this tradition um, of the form of Buddhism that we've been practicing here, if you're new to Spirit Rock. It comes from the countries of, mainly from Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka. And that form of Buddhism is called Theravada, as opposed to maybe Zen Buddhism, Chan Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. So the lineage that's often practiced here is, um, its root base uh, is, in, is in this Theravadan Buddhism. And so at some point I was practicing as a layperson and I got deeply moved by these practices, saw how much I wanted to um, further myself in my awakening and thought, you know, some period of just indefinite practice would be very beautiful. So I went over to Burma with the idea that I might ordain if I found a monastery that I felt um, I was in alignment with and I liked and um, so it was, a, it was kind of not sure that I would do it, but um, interested in the possibility if it felt right. When I talked to this one woman who had been to this first monastery I was going to, she'd just come back to the States and I was about to go and asked her what I should bring with, is there any few things I should bring. And she gave me a three-page printout of things I should bring with me to Burma. I had never been. And it had everything on it. It had candles, it had rope, it had um, safety pins. And she said, the safety pins that are not so good, bring your own safety pins, you'll thank me. I'm like, okay, I'll get safety pins. And bring your own rope, bring your own candles. And so you have a 50-pound bag limit you know, when you go on the airplane. And so I got 49.99 <laughs> into this bag. <clears throat> and it was a huge thing. But I was like, okay, I've never been to Burma, so I don't know. Looking back there was an assumption that Burma couldn't take care of me, that what I needed to be happy couldn't be found there. So I had to bring with me a big self-care package. And <clears throat> so it was 50 pounds. And I looked back, at it was my 50-pound bag of fear. But I thought at the time it was my 50-pound bag of security. But you know, I had to lug it to the airport. I had to lug it around between, you know, between uh, wherever we went over that time, might have been Taiwan or uh, Seoul or wherever the plane, the planes um, connect. And I had to haul it around with me and I put it in my room and it just sat there and I didn't need any of it. 
but it sat there. <clears throat> and it was my kind of, it was like my savings account. <laughs> it's like, okay, now this I can trust on. If things go really go down bad, whichever way that might be, you know, I could probably live for a month over off the power bars I brought and my just-in-case batteries and all those little things that she said I should bring with me. But it just sat there, inert. <clears throat> sat there, inert. And I find it was safe, but at the same time, it was just this big lug of a thing I'd brought over with me. And I found that um, because the meditation invites us into such a simple place, after a while, you know, you can feel contentment with things just as they are. If you're not content with the way things are, chances are there's nothing in my 50-pound bag that's really going to do it. <laughs> I tried to take refuge in the power bar, and if I really was looking for something to make me happy, a power bar wouldn't do it, um, nor would the slight increase in quality of candle I had brought. And so it ended up really not being that useful to have it, but just sat there kind of, I didn't know what to do with it. And so I got comfortable being in Burma and um, uh, practicing and finding that really my greatest contentment would come from within, and I could cultivate that, cultivate a sense of release, um, cultivate a sense of simplicity. It began to occur to me that um, I could really do without my security blanket, my security bag, um, this big lug of a thing. So then all this, things that had been bought out of fear um, became, I could liberate myself from it, liberate my own fear of it, and then give it out. And so I was giving people clothespins, I was giving people power bars, I was giving people... And it felt good, it felt relieving to not have this 50-pound bag um, of security, of false security, really. As I began to tune into the possibility of being uh, a part of the web of life, which is so seen and recognized and practiced in a country like Burma, and definitely around the monasteries, that I just felt lighter and lighter as this sort of me protection thinking began to break down and I began to open up on it and then again to um, distribute it. So the same energy that had been bound up in protecting me, <clears throat> when liberated, it was relieving, but also other people could receive the benefit of all these things that I have. It became a gift bag rather than a security bag. And that was really um, mirroring what was happening to me while I was there, getting a sense that the happiness I might have found through other strategies um, didn't work. So days when I was really feeling frustrated, there wasn't a lot that could be done from the outside. and I just had to learn to be patient with them. And then when I was truly happy, it really was because of something from the outside. It, really, it was because my heart had released in that moment and I felt very content and very fulfilled. So I began to need less and less from the outside, and that began to seem like this bag was um, really counterproductive to have it just taking up space. So liberating the energy that was in the bag by getting rid of the things and sharing them. <clears throat> and that's really the possibility when we come to practice dana is our own freedom. It's, on one level, it's a nice thing to do collectively. It's a nice thing to be generous to each other. Um, it kind of forms a warmth. It forms the warmth of community when we're looking out for each other and taking care of each other and being generous. But if you do it in the right way, you can feel into where you're holding and bracing, trying to find security, and what it's like to melt that and open it and see if there's a release there. And in that releasing, you might find yourself more at ease, a sense of lightness, a sense of trust, and a sense of connection, and finding common solutions versus, I, I follow personal solutions, I can take care of myself, versus how are we going to take care of each other? And thinking that way is often how, again, as a mind opens up into loving kindness, and it's less specific who you're going to be kind to, you can come into more um, collective thinking, thinking about the collective welfare. So this is one of the, the, um, the beautiful bloomings that comes out of this practice, is one, feeling more content inside so you don't need to be so worried about taking care of yourself. 
too, it just becomes enjoyable to really understand other people. And then three, a type of collective welfare, collective thinking that can go on, healthy collective thinking. That's really the basis of monasteries. If you um, look into how these Theravadan monasteries are structured, um, everything is shared. You get to own very little. You get to own the bowl you have. You get to own the robes you have. You get to own the sandals you have and the razor you use to shave your head. But the rest is, is not really owned. And so the whole monastery is actually owned usually by the village nearby. And the lay people, they own it and the monks get to live there, but they don't own it themselves. And then a lot is shared. So the amount of food that you collect, you share among people who are maybe too ill to go out that day to collect food. So it has a functionality to it. And you could just leave it at that saying, yeah, it's very functional to think about other people and to create a, a system where we are looking out for each other. But it goes deeper than that. It's a practice towards your own liberation and it's a, an expression of your own liberation to let your heart warm and then overflow from warmth in towards action, warmth where you like to take care of others, you like to um, keep your eye out and see if there's a way you can participate in the welfare of others. That grows out of loving kindness practice. It grows out of the heart as it becomes free. And it can be practiced as this uh, dana practice. When I finally did ordain, <clears throat> um, one of the beautiful practices, I had no idea how beautiful this practice would be, would be going on an alms walk every morning. And so I'd read about it and heard about it. But to actually do it, um, you can leave the monastery in the morning as soon as you can tell the difference between a leaf and a scorpion. <laughs> so just enough light so you're not going to be stepping on things you shouldn't step on. And we'd walk out, and I ordained in January, which actually is very cold in Burma. It By 8 o'clock you're sweating, but by 5 o'clock when you leave it's still very chilly and you can see your breath. And so we would gather together and we'd walk out of the monastery and I was sort of a, a brand new monastic and had my bowl, had my robes. I was walking behind my uh, friends who also had ordained. And we walked down this road and there was always this point where we had walked and we were about to come to our first household where people would be donating uh, food that they'd cooked and they'd gotten up early enough to cook food enough for themselves and also to donate to the monks and nuns that were coming on alms walk. And so there was this one point we were walking through the woods, we'd come out and we could see about a hundred yards down the road, the first house. And every morning, um, this one Burmese woman was standing there perfectly still, holding her own bowl full of hot rice. And we could still see our breath, it was cold and I was getting a little chilled. And so I'd take my bowl and we'd sort of knock the dust off from the dusty road and we'd kind of recollect ourselves and walk towards her. And we'd get there and I'd take the lid off my bowl and she'd put a scoop of warm or actually hot rice in the bowl and it was a metal bowl. So as soon as that first rice would go in the bowl, it would spread through the bowl and right into my hand. And I remember putting my mindfulness right into my hand because I'd be chilly otherwise and to feel that warmth, and to put yourself in that kind of vulnerable situation where I wouldn't eat that day were it not for the kindness of others. It's a beautiful risk to take when the system is up and running. It's a very um, very easy thing to trust. So it's very rewarding, but you can extend yourself to um, go to places where people um, may not be so wealthy and you may not get such... Um, you're not sure every day you're going to get your needs met. And yet people will become aware of you and become aware of your needs and they do what they can to support you. To have a culture that that's one of their basic values and basic tenets. You know, Burma is not perfect and it was ruled by a um, horrible military and they still have troubles. So not trying to paint too idealistic a picture of that country, except that they do have certain tenets that are well-established all through the country, and one of them is this type of generosity. 
She didn't know me. I actually never got to know her name. But every morning, she would offer a scoop of rice. And the physical rice was nourishing to my body. The warmth in my hand was re-inspiring that there was warmth on that cold morning. And the fact that this person every morning would do that, would wake up extra early to cook food, to have something generous to offer these monks and nuns who are coming by. That sweetness, I didn't know how much I had been missing it. Didn't know how much even culturally I'd been missing it until I began to become accustomed to what it was like to have many points of contact all through a day fueled by this beautiful sense of generosity. It tends to be many small acts, many small attuned acts of generosity, not huge parades, not dumping hundreds of pounds of rice on somebody. It tends to be, Donna tends to be, because the heart is sensitive, it tends to tune into the, the being that you're inspired by and give a light touch, the touch that's needed, the touch that makes a difference. That tends to be where Donna really flourishes. It's not the size of the gift, it's really the attunement of the heart that recognizes and loves another and then brings that forward in, into some type of action. As I would go on in the alms round, um, over the time that I was ordained there, I got to know the village. And some people, their hearts were not in that same place. And for them, it was a, a thing they did. You can just tell that they were just checking the box. Oh yeah, they're supposed to make the rice and feed the monks. And they sort of throw in rice and it would kind of you know, half go in the bowl and half on your robe. And they weren't paying attention much. There'd be a long line of us and they'd just be kind of trying to, and I was like, okay, you know, their heart's in the right place, but it was so different when someone actually had that metta, had that generosity, and they themselves, you could just feel the warmth of it. So I got to see different qualities of where people were with their practice of generosity. You know, it was always a, uh, one spoon of rice, but it be, could be given with full heart or something where the person was more challenged by what they were doing. I remember one um, older father was trying to teach his young son how to do it. And he was a scolding father. And so the son was tense about how to do it. And so the whole thing was a little like, I just was sending them warmth that um, they transcend this type of um, tension to get it right. But then other people were so incredibly beautiful about how they gave. It would carry me through the day. And I still feel this uh, tenderness towards um, how carefully people would be attuned with these many little gifts. There was an older woman, and the way she would tend to us, there might be a line of 20 monks passing her by. And she was very slow, and that kind of, you could, there, we'd sort of, um, we'd um, kind of collapse and kind of have to wait because she was very careful in how she did it. And there are many people we're trying to get to, and so, but we all would slow down for her every morning. And she would take a scoop and she would look in our bowl and she'd look at the spoon, and then she would put it off to the side because often there'd be a mound of rice. And if it got too high, it would kind of, and you didn't hold it just right, you couldn't put the lid back on or it would spill out and get on your robe again and you have to wash your robe. So she would look into the bowl and she'd take the spoon and she'd sort of smooth out the rice in our bowl and dump her rice in and just make it look really nice inside. <laughs> and you're kind of in the sense of like, okay, you know, there's, we kind of have to like do this and then we have to other chores back to the monastery. And if you got all that type of thinking, you're like, wow, she's really taking her time here. <laughs> <laughs> but then when it came to your bowl and you're, I mean, when you look at the monastics on the outside, it looks very beautiful. But on the inside, it's a human being trying to wake up. And so you have your, your, you have your flowing days, you have your challenging days, and then you have your days where you just feel tired or lonely or you don't think you can do it, you have doubts. And so if that was that morning and I came there and she looked in my bowl and I was worthy of her care and she would smooth out the little cone of rice 
make sure that it all ends. If there's any little rice on the rim that you were worried about getting on your robe, but couldn't really do anything about it, so you're just praying that it wouldn't fall off, she would kind of clean that off and you know clean you up a little bit. And so she was this sort of uh, grandmother type being who, uh, it was so beautiful. And then to see her every morning, it wasn't just a good day for her. It wasn't just sort of a holiday expression of who she was. That that's what she wanted to do at six o'clock in the morning, every morning, was take care of the line of monastics passing in front of her and slow us all down. She didn't care that we were ordained and make sure that our bowls were well tended. That's beautiful. That's metta. She could just appreciate us and then functionally put rice in, but it it becomes this warm, tender action, which is beautiful when you start doing it yourself. It's like holding the cat in your lap and it's purring, and you just can't help but uh, get that purr going because it feels so good to have that being receiving your care. And you're not, you know, I am such a great person because look how much I... It's just like, oh, it's just beautiful. It's timeless to kind of drop into that space of taking care of yourself, taking care of others. And it's beautiful that it has a name. It has a name called Dana. Oh, Dana. <laughs> I had a gift and Dana was its name. Sorry. <laughs> so... Uh, it's a practice. It's an expression, but it's also a practice. So just as we start where it's easy, you might see, okay, my heart's warming up, and I have these tender feelings towards myself or towards these others. And then, oh, look, you know, there's an action I'd love to take. There's, you know, I wonder how I could help. And then you do that, and you see, can I attune to just the uh, the beauty of the action itself. And what happens is that many little complications start to arise. One, you have to watch out for, does anybody see me doing this? Because I look really good doing this. And so the egoic desire to get a badge out of it, and it's like, no, I'm going to let go of the badge. I'm going to just tune into this this expression of heart. And then you run into your own insecurities. I don't know if I have enough to give. I don't know if I should give this, or what will they think if I spend this much time, if I'm trying to give in this way? Those are not bad reflections, but they can make it complicated to um, just let the purity of your own desire to give come. So again, smaller actions tend to transmit dana more than necessarily big ones, but you might even get to a place where a very big desire comes through you as your heart opens. It's happened. I mean, it's probably happened for you all in your own way. But there are stories of people doing incredible things. I'm not sure if you have ever heard of this woman named Peace Pilgrim. She was born Mildred Norman Ryder, or actually has her married name Ryder. And <clears throat> at some point, she, got, she grew so concerned for the world and the wars that were happening in uh, 50 years ago and the possibility of nuclear war, that she began walking. And she put on um, a tracksuit, and she had um, a toothbrush and toothpaste in one pocket, and she had a pad of paper and a pen in the other, and she walked. And she walked for decades. She started walking one day, but she just kept walking. And people saw her, and they began to take care of her, and she walked for peace, for uh, so many years, just kept walking. She was not born necessarily knowing she would do that. She was not taught to do that. That came out of her own awakened heart, the desire to be um, joyously connected to her cause and walking, spreading um, uh, the possibility of thinking about peace, the level of sacrifice we all might need to make to really establish peace. She was willing to make that um, uh, make that her life calling, and she actually uh, passed away. She died um, while en route one day. So it just came upon her to do that. Every culture has people that we can look to that have this type of beauty 
in their hearts, caring, and that caring being what fuels them to do uh, lifelong pursuits of looking after the welfare of the people in their country. I named a few people this morning, and people have come up on this retreat already, but you can see that what what does a heart <clears throat> that is free and caring and then becomes generous in that caring, what does it give to the planet? And again, some people have become famous for this, again, like Nelson Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, Gandhi in India, Martin Luther King here. But there are also countless people in all the, the cities, towns, and villages who also have this beauty and may not have gotten famous for it, but they're oriented towards that caring. And once, it, once your heart opens in that direction, it can become bright. It can become like a rising sun within, and it becomes self-validating. We practice in that direction, but at some point we get such a strong fire going that the fire doesn't go out, it keeps burning. And so it's just reinforced by being alive, by being in contact with the world. You can't help but care for it more and more. By being present with the world, you can't help but hear the frogs. You can't help but enjoy them. And then if you learn that their environment is being challenged and you care for them already, you want to work for their welfare. That comes just from having an open heart connected to the world and the caring comes up and out of that caring is mobilized our desire to participate in a way that brings happiness and welfare to others. This is a dawning of a free heart and mind. It does care for others. The Buddha um, is another example of this. He, uh, if you believe the mythology, lived for um, trillions of lifetimes, more than you could count, more than there's a number for developing his capacity so that during a life he could wake up. And not only wake up, he could teach. And not only teach, he could teach so well that he would set in motion teachings that would last for um, thousands of years. So he had to work for that. And he himself became free in his 30s, but said that he walked all over northern India and spent every day teaching people how to be free. Uh, that was his dana. That was his heart opening, warming, being in contact with the suffering of the world, realizing that he had something to offer and tirelessly offering that. And there are no stories of his vacation. <laughs> there are no stories where he went off to Goa, uh, this be these beautiful beaches in India, to get some R&R. When, when he was tired, he slept. When he wasn't sleeping, he was usually tending people. There are many stories where he was walking through a monastery that had been built. And he overheard a conversation and he stopped and began to dialogue with the people about their practice and tried to give them advice. And he did that for 45 years. And he did it so well. And it was so inspiring that people kept practicing we're all sitting here now because many people, many, many people over many, many centuries in many different countries have put in the time, their backs have hurt, their knees have hurt, they faced doubts, they put in their time, they felt the freedom dawning in them. Many of them became completely free. And they taught, and they shared it, and another generation learned it. And we're sitting here now because of the generosity of people in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka that have taught our teachers. And now we have a center that's opened up here. It's the downflow of a caring heart that has participated and cared for others all through these many centuries. So we're all the recipients of people we've never met, but because they were kind, because they were dedicated the gift kept rolling. And this is why we all get to sit here with our aching backs and our doubting minds <laughs> and our stretching knees and our purification cycles. 
But when you get to see that what actually happens because of this work, we can send back gratitude. There's generosity flowing, and then the receiving of it, we can be touched with beautiful, beautiful gratitude for the people who have uh, taken that chance to be of service, to be generous, which is really the flip side. The generous heart wants to serve. The heart that can feel can actually withstand the arising of gratitude. You would think that gratitude would be a beautiful thing to feel, but sometimes it's overwhelming when you see how much people have given you, how much you've received in this life. And to take time to actually rest in your own gratitude for all that you have received is also a, a, a testament to your own awaking heart that you have received a lot and that um, there's a beauty and you can be grateful for that beauty, what you received. There's a poem by Hafiz, um, one of the people we quote a lot, Hafiz and Rumi. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There is definitely room for grand acts of generosity, and it's, it can be um, delightful to trust yourself if something large has come through that you want to put into motion and to really shake it up and let generosity flow and see what that looks like. Um, more often than not, it will just be a sensitive heart that does many, many, many small gifts throughout the day, throughout the week. Mother Teresa has said, uh, we can't do great acts. We can only do small acts with great love. I think when I was younger, I wanted greater acts. I wanted to hit some type of home run that would change the world and um, tried many of them. And I loved what I tried, but um, so much more of what, of what has been meaningful sometimes has been uh, steady acts of kindness and people receiving that and that that ending up being meaningful more than something heroic. So I would make room for heroic acts of generosity. Um, but really the steadiness of loving kindness and pulling that forward as a value so that you are led by loving kindness, that it's a part of your every day. And then seeing what comes out of that space as you begin to be warm to and feel the people around you, feel the animals, the environment around you, what type of caretaking um, is delightful. And in that way, you don't actually burn out. You can be tired at the end of a generous day, but it tends not to burn you out. It tends to be quite satisfying when what has been leading is dana, what has been leading is loving kindness. We get burned out when we're, our hearts are in a more complicated place and we spend time stretching and then coming up against limits and then being frustrated by them. And that can be very hard work that can lead to a type of exhaustion. But usually generosity, well spent over the course of the day, leads to beautiful sleep because it's a, it can be such a place of contentment when we've worked out the kinks of our generosity. We also have to explore uh, healthy boundaries as a way to sustain ourselves in our caring, just like with uh, loving kindness, just like working with difficult people, seeing what, what are my limits here? I'm inspired to give a lot but I do have to tune into what's actually um, doable for me. And so we might underestimate what we can give and we might overestimate. 
as um, Jack Kerouac said, only those who go too far truly know how far one can go. So we learn where the lines are. We learn, hopefully, not by sneaking up underneath them, but occasionally going over them, but not so far over them that we um, build up fear of being generous again. But if we can find that place where the generosity is rewarding, where just the, the flowing of our hearts and how that turns into kindness and kind actions and the caring for others and the type of peace that comes when our hearts are active like that, it can actually be fulfilling and lead to a type of contentment so that you are not left depleted at the end, but you actually feel fulfilled by giving to others. We all know that that's possible, and we all know that egoically it can be complex sometimes, but it is possible to cultivate the type of giving that isn't depleting, the giving that actually you feel more full than when you started because of the beauty of the connection, the beauty of the heart's expression when it gave, when it wanted to give on that level. A very good friend of mine, um, when I was uh, traveling and visiting her, after a few days, she said, you know what, you're, you're a friend I want to bring into this, com- this conversation I'm having, this reflection. I feel deeply, deeply depleted, and I don't know how to give anymore because I feel like I'm right up against, every time I give you a little bit, I feel drained. <clears throat> And having done that myself, having known it's like to have spent time giving and giving and giving and enjoying it, but not knowing where the the healthy lines were, it seemed to me it was as if she was taking a sponge and going into her bathtub and wringing it out and then mopping up the very bottom of it and wringing it out and it was dry. And then a little water would go in, she'd grab it up and share it and said, Take a, take, a, take a time and let your own wellness fill up. Reconnect to your own source. Reconnect to your own sense of fullness so that when you go to share with others, it's because there's an overflowing. It's like trying to get water from a reservoir that's low versus letting it rain and letting it rain. At some point, the reservoir can't contain it anymore and it overflows. When you're around beings that have that type of wellness inside because they've cultivated it, and it begins to overflow in your direction, it, you can feel the, the deep wellness in that being, and then you're on the receiving end of it. Which is why loving yourself is so important. Loving yourself well. Not with um, badges and trophies. We might start there just to kind of convince us that we have worth. But then actually loving, spending time developing loving kindness for yourself, feeling contentment, removing the tapes of self-criticism, and coming into that deep relationship for ourselves where we've forgiven ourselves, we know how to hold ourselves tenderly. We start to feel a type of contentment that's born out of our own self-care, our own wellness inside. When that becomes full, and then we go and interact with the world, our egos tend not to be as complicated. They tend not to be as needy. They tend not to be as defensive, because there's an inner place of well-being. And that's what we cultivate. Every time you settle down and open up to the possibility of being content just with one breath at a time, when you can let yourself be simple and say metaphrases over and over, Finding contentment in these simple actions is what fills us up inside to the place where our hearts are brimming. And then when we are touched by the world and want to serve, it's from a place of fullness, not from a place of being beleaguered and exhausted. So these are part of what we have to explore. If you're not opening your heart to be touched by the world, chances are there's a pattern of being a little bit shut down And from that, the world is not so satisfying. Your relationship to isn't satisfying. It can lead you into being shut down. 
So we start practicing kindness for ourselves and others and we open up. And then we go a little too far, we feel strung out, we come back. And through this coming in, filling up, going out and sharing, coming in, filling up, going out and sharing, we open up the fact that there is a wellspring inside that can finally open, fill us up from within, and then uh, overflow out into our care for the world. That's possible for all of us. We all actually have that wellspring inside. As I mentioned, the image of a river that's been blocked up by trees and things that have fallen in it, as we pull these things out, the water begins to flow. And when it flows from within, we're fed from within. The generosity that comes out is uh, quite clean. It's quite beautiful. It doesn't have any strings attached to it. There's no IOU to it. You can just feel that it's the freedom of heart and mind. And it's not even my energy. You know, the source may be coming up through this body, but why do I need to own it? I just happen to be in a place on Tuesday to be generous, and on Thursday it's you. But why do we even need to call it my gift or your gift? It's just gifting. Gifting has arisen, and it's arising through all these different channels. And when a community begins to recognize itself and take concern for itself, it will come up wherever it can. And that's really the treasure of sangha, the treasure of community. When you've worked with, with a community long enough that many streams are open, many hearts are open, so that the generosity has many ways of coming in to be expressed. And that's when uh, sangha becomes really priceless because we've all done that work to have some access to our hearts. And then it's just conditions that one day it's, I happen to be in that open space and the next day it might be you. So that's what we can practice. We can practice loving kindness for each other, developing that appreciation, opening the heart, feeling that warmth. And then when that warmth wants to take action and that action feels appropriate, letting it um, take some life, letting it come into action. And that's the practice and development of dana. There are many little ways that you can practice it here on the retreat, and you maybe already have. But this little ways of letting someone walk through the door and giving them the, the, the space to do that versus colliding, holding a door for somebody, the way we're kind to each other, around the sharing of food, or if you're walk, working with somebody, and that type of kind consideration, if you're both washing dishes together, you could be functional about it, but you could bring caring into that shared activity. So on retreat, because we're really letting people have their solitude, the dana is very light in how we care for each other, these small little actions. But once we come out of retreat mode, dana can become um, an incredible practice, an incredible force. It could be how you frame your entire life to be one where you're exploring generosity. Because we will become more interactive after the retreat. So here, it's, this, it's probably light actions. Even just to have the consideration for others is beautiful. But that consideration um, can become a whole way of living, uh, guided by this warmth of heart, by the tuning in and the consideration towards others. It's a deep value structure of this tradition. And it's um, practiced with such beautiful sincerity in all the Theravadan countries and Theravadan communities. And I think it's bigger than Theravada, obviously. It's probably seen in any functioning community, a type of authentic generosity. But as we practice here and we practice together silently, we sometimes miss that silent practice as a part of how we train. It's an important part of how we train but it's really a whole life path. 
And so outside of this form where we're really protecting solitude, dana can be um, a very powerful part of the path. One of the pillars of the path is living by the spirit of generosity. So you can explore it here, get in contact with it here. But when we leave here, you can really uh, open up the floodgates and see what it's like to be a generous driver and a generous citizen, to be out and about with this sense of concern for others and enjoying a heart that really does consider the welfare of others, all beings, plants, animals, environments, people. So I think that's enough for tonight. Let's just sit for a little bit and let that percolate down and recover our own simple, warm hearts. Come back down into our bodies if we've left them. Maybe one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself and others will come through your very practice. Becoming self-aware and tender, at times humble, and maybe feeling self-love and care for others and removing aspects of heart and mind that are harmful or destructive. That brings the welfare for yourself and all those you're in contact with. And so just these acts of sitting and walking are also expressions of dana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.